Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Climate committed. America's ambitious Earth Day emissions pledge. China clash. Australia cancels Belt and Road deals, angering Beijing. And COVID collapse. India sees record new cases, pushing the health system to the brink. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move and a happy Earth Day to all our viewers around the globe, too. It's a day where the U.S. government formally announces its return to climate competency in a summit attracting leaders from other big polluters from around the world, including Chinese President Xi Jinping. It's the second Earth Day spent amid the global COVID pandemic, of course, to India. As I mentioned, reporting more than 310,000 new daily cases today, the worst one-day case spike ever. We'll take you there for all the latest. We'll also speak to the head of the OECD, Ankel Guria, who says strict climate goals and stronger vaccine rollouts are urgently needed to avoid exacerbating economic, social and healthcare inequalities around the world. On this Earth Day, it's more important than ever to remember no global citizen is truly safe unless we all are and we have to take care of each other. In the meantime, Wall Street struggling to reflect Earth Day's green and pre-market trade after Wednesday's 1% bounce back. That said, we've got another encouraging read on jobless claims in the United States, too. Still highly elevated, let's be clear, but the lowest levels since the start of the pandemic and below that 600,000 level for a second straight week. All right, let me give you a look at the global picture for stocks at this moment. Europe managing to make gains. It's higher across the board with the region's economic climate in focus today, too. Christine Lagarde continuing to focus on the near-term risks after the ECB's policy meeting today, saying massive monetary stimulus support is still needed. And uh, you can have a look as well at what we've got going on in Asia. Earth Day green shoots in Japan after a 4% plunge in stock this week on concerns that the state of emergency declarations may be announced in Tokyo and other regions. All right, let's get to the drivers. President Biden has a present for the planet this Earth Day, vowing that the U.S. will cut emissions in half by 2030. That's compared to 2005 levels. By maintaining those investments, and putting these people to work, the United States sets out on the road to cut greenhouse gases in half, in half by the end of this decade. That's where we're headed as a nation. And world leaders from 40 different nations joining this summit. As you can see, these are live pictures. Vladimir Putin, of course, the president of Russia speaking at this moment, just one of many. Xi Jinping, as I mentioned earlier, one of the other leaders speaking. Geopolitical tensions aside, everyone, I think, recognizing the importance of tackling the climate at this moment. John Defterius joins us with all the details. John, great to have you with us. The United States stepping up ahead of this. The EU stepping up and accelerating its targets too. all eyes on big polluters like challenged India at this moment and China, too, with what they can come up with. Energy efficiency. 
address all of Yeah, I would say, Julia, that the Biden administration is clearly, clearly here upping the ante with its targets release uh, today going into this uh, summit of leaders, some 40 attending here. These are the game changers that can set the targets to COP26 in November. Uh, and it's an important pivot, if you will, if they can get alignment here with the Biden administration and the UK, which is leading that discussion here. But let's just park ourselves for a moment on the Biden administration. This target to cut emissions by 50 to 52 percent by 2030 is nearly double what we saw and the Barack Obama administration, which was 26 to 28 percent by 2025. And we can't forget, Julia, that we were parked for four years with Donald Trump outside the Paris Climate Agreement. So as you suggested, it was Xi Jinping uh, speaking and now Vladimir Putin. We have the number one uh, emitter, China, speaking to the United States, the number two emitter. And that is fantastic, because if you get buy-in by those two, it can get India on board, then you start to get Momentum. Now, Russia is one of these standouts, uh, Julie, because it's so dependent on oil and gas mm -hmm. right now. Uh, it becomes a political risk over the next 20 or 30 years. And there's other states like that here in the region, like Iran, Iraq, Libya, and Nigeria. That's not what they're considering right now. They just want to accelerate the pace on COP26. Uh, and this is a very steep hill to climb, Julia. Uh, the Renewable Energy Agency here, and we've talked about this before, Arena is talking about reducing demand for hydrocarbons, and listen to this number, by 75% by 2050 to have a chance to hit 1.5 degrees on the global warming centigrade uh, by that time frame here right now. And we have to remember, and this is not often talked about, we still have 770 million people living without electricity. So how do you balance the need to rush to get to the Paris Climate Agreement and still remember those nearly one-seventh of the population around the world that don't have electricity on a daily basis. And can you wean them off of biomass and coal and oil in that time frame as well? The richest nations have to step up. That's the key. If you've got nations that are struggling, those that can mm. must, and they must accelerate, is to your point, America certainly up in the ante. I mean, what we've seen in the last four years as well is, despite the concerns over what the U.S. government was doing or, more importantly, not doing, companies still saying, look, we are committed to the climate. And yet there's a report out by sustainable finance firm Arabesque today saying that less than 25 percent of the world's biggest public companies are following through to the commitments to adhere to the Paris agreement. John, business has to do their part, too. Yeah, absolutely, Julian. I'm glad you spotted that, because what we're talking about here is a public-private partnership on a scale we've never seen in the 20th or 21st century. Oh, and we've lost John there. I was waiting for the uh, big crescendo there, and we never got it. If we get John back, we will go back there. But for now, we will leave it there. John Deterris. There, thank you for joining us. Our next driver is uh, on the move no more after Australia slammed the brakes on a belt and road deal with China. Beijing expressing its firm opposition and warning of further action. Claire Sebastian joins me now. Just the latest salvo, Claire, and the tensions between Australia and China. Just talk us through what happened here with these belt and road deals, because two relating to China, two others from other suspect nations. Yeah, absolutely. This is a big deal, Julia, because this is essentially the central government of Australia overriding one of its states. Victoria is its wealthiest state. They signed a memorandum of understanding with China back in 2018 uh, to sort of be part of the Belt and Road Initiative, that massive strategic priority for Xi Jinping, a huge signature policy for him that, that aims to sort of fund infrastructure projects throughout Southeast Asia and, and thereby increase China's influence 
in that region. Now, this wasn't a traditional Belt and Road deal. It doesn't seem to be sort of funding an infrastructure project. It was simply to sort of build cooperation, encourage investment, that kind of thing. The memorandum has somewhat vague language uh, around this. But the fact that it's now been ripped up is extremely significant. And certainly in the context of the deterioration of the relations between China and Australia, the Australian government uh, saying that the deal was, quote, inconsistent with Australia's foreign policy or adverse to our foreign relations. Also, as you say, tearing up several deals with Iran and Syria, so not the kind of company that China really wants to to find itself in. The Chinese reaction also very strong. The embassy in Australia calling it another unreasonable and provocative move. The foreign ministry spokesperson saying it had lodged solemn representations with Australia. So a clear deterioration here, Julia, uh, between Australia and China, which is still its biggest trading partner. I was going to ask you that. What's actually going on? I remember back in March, the Chinese government confirming tariffs of up to, I think it was 218 percent on Australian wine for the next five years. What's happened since tensions deteriorated at the beginning of the COVID crisis? I think it was Australia said we need to investigate the origins. What's happened to trade since? Yeah, so that was the trigger. That happened about a year ago. The uh, the Australian government saying that they wanted a, an independent inquiry into the origins of COVID-19 caused outrage in Beijing. Now, no one has explicitly linked any of the, the, the sort of seeming retaliation in terms of trade from China. But what's happened is that, that Australian exports to China have started to encounter difficulties, things like beef, timber. Now we have tariffs on wine that go up to 212%. And there were even suggestions at the end of last year that there might be restrictions put on Australian coal imports into China, which would really be a, a major deal. So look, we don't know. This could go further. Retaliation is something that China has put on the table again. The foreign ministry spokesperson saying China reserves the right to make further responses. So clearly trade is an arena that, that is now embroiled in this diplomatic battle. Yeah, I read somewhere that Chinese investment in Australia is down more than 60 percent in, in 2020. Hmm. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. All right, let's move on. Credit Suisse says it would have been its best quarter in at least a decade if you look past the $4.8 billion hit from the collapse of the U.S. investment fund, Archegos. Anna Stewart joins me now. Anna, I mean, that says everything. Please look over here at our results in the best quarter for 10 years while the management stuffed the skeleton of Archegos Capital back into a closet somewhere. I mean, really. Well, yes, the top line really from the CEO today was that this loss is this loss, sorry, is unacceptable and really hammering home that this would have been the strongest quarter Credit Suisse has had for over a decade. But of course, we can't really look past uh, the issue of Archegos and also, of course, Greensill Capital. Now, today, I would say within the earnings report, it very much looked like Credit Suisse wants to draw a line under this. They say that they have now exited 97 percent of their position on Archegos. They say they expect this to further cost them around $650 million. Julia, that would bring the total cost of this Archegos uh, debacle to over $5 billion. And you know what? It could actually be more. Now, are shareholders feeling relieved that the bank is trying to draw a line under all of this? Not so much. Look at the share price today, down over 5%. Investors probably not happy that they're being tapped here for an additional $2 billion in the capital raise. Uh, also, of course, the dividend cut. And I think plenty of people are asking whether this really is the end of the fallout regarding Archegos and Greensill Capital. And perhaps more importantly, will this ever happen again? Have procedures been put in place to ensure that this doesn't get repeated? Julia? And therein lies the key, trust. Because you can have a great quarter, but if your per 
pushing a, an environment of excessive risk taking. And that's we know that's going on anyway, given the money sloshing around in the system. Um, how do investors trust you? Anna, what are they doing to try and regain people's confidence that they are in control of the situation and they know what's going on in the bank? Well, we had a lot of firings and hirings, didn't we, already, particularly within the investment and wealth management, uh, sorry, risk management divisions. Um, of course, the bonuses were also waived for 2020. Today, one interesting part was they're saying they're massively reducing their lending to hedge funds by up to $35 billion, or actually perhaps more, so around a third. So that's going to definitely limit their exposure. They've also asked for an independent investigation into the issues of Archegos and Greensill Capital, as has, finally, the Swiss market regulator. We uh, heard from them they are starting enforcement proceedings. They don't have the power to fine the bank, and it does feel a little bit late in the day. They say they will complement and reinforce the steps taken by Credit Suisse already. But I think the question here is, is there a big problem here in terms of a risk culture within the bank. And is that really being addressed by firings and hirings and, you know, a few probes here and there? Julia? Yeah, and the CN denied that on a, uh, in an interview earlier on a, on a different network this morning. But you raise a really, really important question. Anna Stewart, thank you so much for that. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories that making headlines around the world. India has reported more than 314,000 COVID cases in a single day. That's the highest ever daily tally from any nation in the world. The number of deaths also jumped to a new high. More than 2,100 reported on Thursday. Hospitals across India are struggling to cope, many running out of oxygen, intensive care beds and crucial supplies. Let's get more from CNN's Ivan Watson. Ivan, great to have you with us. The situation sounds incredibly desperate and we're seeing it on social media with people pleading for help. Yeah, I mean, just the level of, I think, anxiety and fear that we are hearing from Indians, including our own colleagues uh, in uh, CNN's New Delhi Bureau, who all are impacted uh, by the scale of this. The the last the first real wave of the pandemic that uh, India faced that reached its peak kind of in September has been absolutely dwarfed by this massive surge of new COVID cases. It's all the more striking when you consider that the central government, it had ministers that were predicting that India was approaching the the, the light at the end of the tunnel uh, as recently as February. And now you have these just acute shortages of hospital beds, of medicine, and of medical oxygen to treat patients who are gasping uh, for their breaths. For example, in the capital, New Delhi, uh, the, the New Delhi health minister saying, there were only 26 intensive care unit beds vacant as of Thursday afternoon to give you a sense of of the scale of this. Take a listen to what one uh, person had to say about the level of fear right now. People are really scared. They are terrified. Most people have isolated themselves in a self-imposed lockdown. They are not stepping out unnecessarily and roads are all empty. People are careful this time. Julia, let's also take a look at some of the social media pleas that are so desperate that people are issuing for their sick loved ones. We have uh, one where somebody says, I need an ICU for my grandfather in Delhi. He's 87 and his oxygen is dipping to 68. Please, please, please help me. Another person saying my friend's mom is in ICU in Lucknow. They're struggling to get oxygen. Can anyone please help me get oxygen cylinder or refill? 
another person tweeting, my cousin is lying in unconscious condition waiting for the ICU bed since the last five hours. His oxygen uh, saturation is 50. He won't survive until the morning. I mean, we're seeing this on a really massive scale right now. The central government issuing kind of a a number of executive orders saying that uh, oxygen shipments across state lines should not be restricted, uh, issuing a ban on uh, oxygen use in industries, except for nine exceptions, clearly wanting to to make sure that oxygen can get to the hospitals that that need them right now, but truly a a desperate situation. And as we've seen in other countries, when they feast these these spikes, it's not something that ends overnight. It's something that is likely to to continue for more desperate weeks uh, at a time until it starts to ease off. So India is really in a dire situation right now. The Prime Minister Narendra Modi just now has canceled a campaign trip to West Bengal state. As recently as the beginning of this month, his party was holding mass rallies. Now they've announced that they want to keep those election rallies down to a maximum of 500 people, which suggests that that politics are still moving ahead at, at quite a large scale, even though the country is facing this this serious, serious health crisis right now, Julia. Yeah, as you said, I have a desperate and heartbreaking situation going on there. Thank you for that report. Ivan Watson there. All right, we're going to take a break here on First Move. Coming up, as world leaders talk about climate change, the OECD Secretary General joins me to lay out his vision of a sustainable future and Ethereum or Bitcoin, the co-founder of crypto's number two currency. You could argue it's outperforming its bigger brother. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. President Biden's Global Climate Summit underway as we speak on this Earth Day as the White House looks to return America to a leadership position on tackling climate change. Forty world leaders are joining the U.S. president to discuss how to protect our planet. The Indonesian president, you can see, speaking there live at this moment. And this, of course, as the world is dealing with the huge challenge of COVID-19. The OECD is urging a faster vaccine rollout across the world for a stronger economic recovery. And joining us now is the OECD Secretary General, Ankel Guria. Sir, fantastic to have you on the show. Two critical issues to deal with. The more immediate COVID, of course, the multi-generational challenge climate. Let's start with COVID. I think we all knew it was going to be an imbalanced vaccine rollout, but we're seeing supply issues. We're seeing nationalism kick in. How worried are you? We're seeing uh, the best and we're seeing the worst. Hmm. Uh, And I think the best in the ingenuity, we actually uh, were able to uh, develop vaccines in one year, uh, and uh, and that is being rolled out now. But now there are problems of production, et cetera. But this, uh, uh, this concentration of the vaccines in the hands of a few countries is really not good because we will not be uh, over the hump. We will not overcome this problem until everybody is vaccinated because we will give a chance to mutations. We will give a chance to variants. And we have seen how bad that is. So the outlook, the economic outlook depends crucially on uh, the question of vaccines and, of course, on the question of these uh, big stimulus packages like the one uh, in the United States. 
You were just meeting at the G20, so you've spoken to many of the leaders. Was there recognition there that more money is required? We spoke to the CEO of Gavi, COVAX, of course, pushing out vaccines around to poorer nations. Is there acknowledgement that more needs to be done and quickly? Uh, Julia, this is an enormous paradox. Uh, 15 trillion with a TR have been, uh, you know, uh, used to uh, fight the war against uh, the virus, appropriately so. And we are short, uh, you know, 22 billion in the last count. So a, a fraction of a fraction of the amount that has been used could actually uh, fund the COVAX mechanism. And then, of course, uh, to make it available to um, all the uh, all the developing countries in the world. Uh, this is the this is the paradox. Uh, out of the 15 trillion, only 153 billion are considered overseas development assistance (ODA). That means aid. That's one percent, one percent, and only a fraction of that is for health. So we are underfunding health. We are underfunding the fight against COVID. And that is, of course, uh, a very bad choice of priorities. What were they saying to you at the G20? Because I'm sure, as always, you were uh, vocal in your views that more must be done. Uh, well, uh, what they were saying, they were acknowledging that it's a paradox. They were acknowledging that they have to shift. Um, and, you know, I, 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 I hope that now uh, that there are a number of reactions the U.S. announced, uh, Canada announced, Germany announced that they were all going to dedicate, uh, France announced, the U.K. announced that they were going to fund COVAX to a, a greater extent. I hope so, because uh, it would be uh, a tragedy uh, if we actually had the availability of the vaccines and we did not have enough funding to be able to provide them to the um, uh, least developed countries in the world. It's tied to what we're seeing in terms of climate action as well. There's a difference between the commitment and then the execution to follow through on your promises. And again, you at the OECD have been incredible on the forefront of saying, look, we need to carbon tax. We need the removal of subsidies for, for fossil fuels. The price of carbon has to go up somewhere between 25 and 75 dollars a ton. Again, what was the response to this, Uncle? And can we get action? Well, again, uh, people acknowledge the fact that it is needed. But, you know, uh, our, our fighting COVID is the most urgent, the more immediate task we have. But the most important intergenerational responsibility is to protect the planet, to preserve the planet. Uh, and for that, we need to preserve, uh, the, the, to fight against climate change, but also biodiversity. Millions of vertebrates are in danger of extinction. We're losing the coral reefs, we're, using, we're losing the mangroves, uh, we're, we're using uh, yeah, the oceans. You know, we've gotten so used now to say that they're going to be by 2050, you know, there's more, more plastic than fish by weight uh, in the ocean. But the tragedy is that we don't get so angry and we don't rebel against this notion. Uh, it's almost become a cliche. Um, water, the quality of the air we breathe every day, the soil, um, uh, yes, it's it's the planet first and foremost. And again, it does not require uh, that, uh, you know, that the, the countries uh, put up as much as the 15 trillion that they've dedicated uh, to the um, to the fight against the virus. 
uh, a fraction of that will do, but we have to get the priorities right. And we also need to um, convince uh, the leaders, convince ourselves that that is the single most important uh, priority that we have for the medium and the long term. But the long term starts today. The long term starts with the, with the decisions and the definitions that we have today. This is why the Biden summit, uh, we can call it that way, is so exciting because it, it's a, a game changer. It's completely turning the expectations around. And uh, now with the United States leading the charge rather than holding everything back, um, this is the big game changer. And with China joining in, mm. you have the first and the second largest uh, emitters of um, CO2, then uh, that will really change the game. Is China ready to change the game, really? Uh, I believe that, uh, number one, uh, China had already announced that uh, they were going to go uh, neutral by uh, 2060. But right now, uh, following the visit of Mr. Kerry and the fact that there is this summit, that everybody is working towards uh, this uh, objective, which, as I say, is intergenerational, it's not just about today, uh, I believe, yes, that they will join. And also because the peer pressure will be enormous, not only for China, but for everybody else in the world who may be lagging behind so far. We shall see. Pledges on commitments, have, but we have to keep pushing. <laughs> uh, Uncle we, we, start by, we start by putting a big fat price on carbon. That is big. And, and that means a big fat tax on carbon. I'm with you. Big fat price on carbon. Anko Gurisa, thank you so much for your time today. And thank you for your work at the OECD as well. Many years of uh, commitment and passion. The Secretary General there of the OECD. Thank you. So thank you. The market opens next. Stay with me. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. markets are up and running on this Earth Day. No Green New Deal on Wall Street stocks searching for direction after an across-the-board rally yesterday. Yes, nothing earth-shattering about those moves. Ready to commit to any sustained moves higher right now after the recent record run. U.S. jobless claims, however, reflecting a more bullish case for the economy. Claims still highly elevated, but below the 600,000 level for the second straight week. That's another pandemic low. In the cryptocurrency space now, what I've been calling the cabbage patch kid of uh, crypto land, Dogecoin, falling another 10% today. That was Brian Brooks, to be fair. Its market cap falling by some $15 billion since Tuesday. So dog days for Dogecoin and rough times for Bitcoin too, sorry. The crypto leader struggling to hold on to the 55,000 level, down some 11% from record highs hit last week. Investors taking increased notice of the recent divergence too between Ethereum, Ether, and Bitcoin. Ethereum rising some 50% against its crypto rival since the beginning of the year. When you look at how the Ethereum blockchain is relied upon, whether it's by smart contracts in so-called decentralized finance or NFTs, non-fungible tokens in the art world and beyond, you'll see why traditional financial companies like MasterCard and JP Morgan are taking note. They and others have recently invested some $65 million in Consensus, a major blockchain player in the space. And Joseph Lubin is CEO of Consensus and co-founder of Ethereum. Joe, fantastic to have you on the show once again. This is a take two because we lost you last time. Um, congratulations 
on the investment. Just explain to us what decentralised finance is and why some of the biggest players in traditional finance are seeing perhaps an opportunity, but also a threat. So similar to how uh, the web and the internet uh, democratised access to information, the ability to publish information, decentralised finance is uh, enabling uh, technologists and entrepreneurs uh, to have direct access uh, on, in terms of how the uh, next generation financial system is being built. We're uh, setting in a paradigm shift, um, a paradigm shift exacerbated by COVID. The shift is about moving from analog trust systems to automated and subjective trust systems and, and decentralized protocols like blockchains, like Ethereum network and Bitcoin uh, essentially enable a new kind of trust, and that new kind of trust in turn enables uh, digital scarcity, uh, cryptocurrencies, other kinds of digital assets, and um, software engineers are able to build very similar kinds of... I'm going to interrupt you again because the gremlins are back and we are struggling to hear you once again. I am sorry to you and I am sorry to our viewers. We are going to take a quick break. We are going to try and fix it and we will be back. Joe, do not move a muscle. Stay with First Move. We're on the case. Welcome back to First Move. Joseph Lubin is CEO of Consensus and a co-founder of Ethereum. And I think third time lucky you are back and that we can hear each other. And um, Joe, you're going to be hearing this description of decentralized finance in your sleep after this. So a third time lucky. What do we need to understand about decentralized finance and the power of the future of finance it represents? Thanks, Julia. So um, just the same way that the web uh, brought democratization to access to information and the ability to publish information, uh, decentralized finance represents the democratization of the financial infrastructure for the planet, uh, enabling technologists and entrepreneurs to essentially do what they do best, which is be creative uh, in building new systems um, uh, in a, uh, essentially a paradigm shift. Uh, we are um, exacerbated by COVID experiencing a paradigm shift in the nature of trust on the planet, moving from subjective trust to automated and objective trust systems. And, and these systems uh, in the form of Ethereum and Bitcoin uh, enable a digital scarcity, uh, which enables uh, cryptocurrencies, central bank digital currencies, and financial protocols that uh, can be built uh, similar to Lego blocks uh, for lending, borrowing, insurance, decentralized trading of tokens. And they can be wired together by entrepreneurs in uh, incredibly innovative ways. And so decentralized finance is replicating the use cases of centralized finance with uh, just far greater efficiency. It's a whole new financial system that's being built, to your point, and people can take out loans, they can take out insurance. But at the core of this is the point that you made about trust. You're effectively cutting out the middleman of whichever it is. And the power of blockchain technology is that everything is recorded. Everyone can see what's going on. There's no hidden aspects in this market. Um. That's true uh, in the sense that uh, everything um, is non-repudiable and recorded on a, on a public ledger, at least for the public networks. Um, but um, they're just like in the traditional financial system, they're 
are ways to encrypt information so that uh, private information is not disclosed. Um, and um, technologists are building layers and layers of privacy and confidentiality onto these open systems. Uh, we at Consensus have built a, a system called Quorum, which is based on the Ethereum technology, which enables private uh, confidential transactions to be done on uh, different kinds of blockchain systems. And that's one reason why major financial in institutions are attracted to this technology. I mean, it's a market that's growing incredibly fast. It's able to cross borders in a way that traditional finance doesn't. But one of the other aspects, and it ties to what we're talking about there, is this idea that it's self-policing. What do we mean by self-policing? So, um, in the current system, uh, regulators need to often protect consumers from financial institutions that may, uh, for instance, be custodying the assets of those consumers. Um, and in a world in which uh, wallets can be constructed so that people can self-custody their own assets or protocols can be built uh, where the rules are actually built into the software so you simply can't do things that are illegal. Um, that is a world where uh, the regulators are going to have to have discussions with the technologists about uh, the fact that essentially uh, we're on the same side and, and we want the same thing, the same sort of protections and enablement uh, for the consumer, uh, and that there may not be as much reason to make restrictions and to reduce uh, the fluidity of innovation uh, by external rule systems. And, and simply the, the rule systems can be much lighter weight um, because the, the systems are more robust and more protective of the, of the consumer and the systems can be built right into the software. Oh, that's a tough message to deliver to a regulator. You can be hands off because this Regulators, is okay. So they can't be hands off. What they need to, to be is tech savvy, they need to be helping design protocols, helping to understand the technology uh, and understand how the technology fits into the, the political philosophies of their particular nation state. And so um, it'll be less about writing laws and more about uh, building um, the understandings into the software along with the technologists. Yeah, understanding the basics of finance and technology, which arguably should be the case in traditional finance too. It's just... Um not work so well, perhaps at times in the past. Joe, I want to get your view on what we're seeing, because the, the on-ramp for many people to understand this space is what we're seeing in terms of digital assets or cryptocurrencies trading. What do you make of what we're seeing in the market today, whether it's Ether or Ethereum, depending on your choice of word, Bitcoin, Dogecoin? Joe, what's going on? Um, what's going on is a crossing of the chasm. Uh, blockchain technology is a disruptive technology. Uh, cryptocurrencies are disruptive. Decentralized finance is disruptive. Non-fungible tokens is a profoundly disruptive technology. They are essentially holding hands and crossing the chasm into popular culture. Uh, mm. Dogecoin mm. is a, a beautiful example of a meme uh, that has been embraced by some of the, the biggest megaphones, the biggest uh, pop culture um, advocates in our space, uh, Mark Cuban, Elon Musk, and uh, uh, Dogecoin, Bitcoin uh, are powerful memes uh, that have significant functionality, even though Dogecoin is sort of a, a play token. Um, Ethereum is also a powerful... <laughs> What's the functionality in Dogecoin? 
it's actually not very different from the functionality of Bitcoin. It's just that Bitcoin uh, has been much more accepted as a money uh, and Dogecoin uh, started a, as essentially a playful meme. Um, I would argue that both are enormously similar and distinguished uh, because they don't have a lot of functionality other than this consensus that they're sort of a money. They're so distinguished from... That's a compliment the, to Dogecoin and an insult to Bitcoin, perhaps. So I believe that Bitcoin is an incredibly powerful meme. I think of Bitcoin as a, a non-fungible token. The whole Bitcoin system is a non-fungible token that's been fractionalized uh, into little Bitcoin pieces uh, so that can be owned by so many people. And just like uh, a really valuable piece of art that might be encapsulated in a non-fungible token, um, people are sharing ownership of Bitcoin, uh, similar to how they share ownership of gold on the planet. Do you think all the prices of these things rise, continue to rise? Uh, absolutely. I mean, we're, mm. we're at a paradigm shift, as I indicated. We're moving from old money systems, centralized uh, financial and economic systems to new decentralized protocols, uh, which have much more trust built into them. And so um, money that is sort of end of lifing after 70, 80 year debt super cycles uh, that is not yielding very much is giving away to new forms of money that uh, according to supply and demand, are heavily in demand and are rising in value. In addition to that, they are um, offering yield uh, to many investors in these decentralized finance protocols. And so where would you want or, or what sort of money would you want to hold? Would you want uh, the old decaying money from a, a system that is, that is end of lifing or would you want to hold the money uh, that is the currency of the new decentralized protocol realm? End of lifing. Very quickly, because it is Earth Day. Joe, one of the big criticisms from those outside of the crypto space is how energy intensive it is. It's not a clean technology. I know you, Ripple, CoinShares have joined a crypto climate accord and say that you can make the cryptocurrency industry entirely run on renewable energy by 2025. Really? Oh, yeah. So that's that's easy for the Ethereum protocol. It's going to be much, much harder for Bitcoin because they are so entrenched in this proof of work system, which burns a ton of electricity. Um, Ethereum is getting much more scalable. It's going to be hitting hundreds of thousands of transactions per second uh, in the next six, nine months. Um, and it's doing that by implementing layer two technologies, which are much more efficient sitting on top of layer one, which continues to be less efficient. Layer one is evolving to the next generation of the protocol, Ethereum 2. Ethereum 2 uh, will be orders of magnitude less expensive in terms of transaction cost and less consumptive in terms of energy. So Ethereum's energy problem is largely getting solved as we speak and will be solved uh, in nine to 12 months. Yes or no answer because I'm going to get shouted out. Does the energy problem for Bitcoin impact the price? Yes or no? No. Mm, that's the key. Joe, great to have you on. Third time lucky we made it work. Joe Lubin, CEO of Consensus and co-founder of Ethereum. Great to chat to you. Thank you. Back after this. Stay with us.
Welcome back to First Move. Japan coming to the climate summit with a new goal, pledging to cut greenhouse gas emissions by 46 percent by the end of the decade, a goal based on carbon levels from 2013. Business also getting on board. Japanese drinks giant Suntory saying it will cut emissions from its direct operations by 50 percent by 2032. Joining us now is Takeshi Niyanami. He's the CEO of Suntory, also economic advisor to the Japanese Prime Minister. Sir, fantastic to have you on the show as always. Suntory joining the 50 Club, the 50% reduction in admissions by 2030. What's it going to take in terms of commitment, investment and cost? Thank you, Julia. Good to be back. Um, it's a really tough goal, as a matter of right. fact, to achieve. And, uh, but we have a pathways already to achieve this goal by 2030, uh, such as actively um, introduce renewable energy globally. However costly it will be, we will do that to promote the new technology. Technology matters quite a lot. Think about 10, 10 years time. Lots of talents, lot of investments, lot of public policies. I'm a strong believer that the technology will be a key, including DX. And uh, we will raise our radar further to search for new technology by investing to ventures and the venture capitals. And the third, which is the most important, we will re-engineer our business self so that uh, we can focus uh, on uh, growth potential businesses to generate more cash to fund this sustainability effort and leveraging the uh, post-COVID uh, uh, tailwind. So this is a key uh, strategic uh, uh, initiative for Suntory. I love your point about innovation. I recently read um, Bill Gates' book, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster, and he was saying, unless we bring the cost of green technologies or the green premium down by 95%, through innovation, will never hit the net zero goal by 2050. Do you think other chief executives, do you think world leaders understand it's about innovation as much as anything else? I definitely believe so. Whether agile or not, innovation is only the key right. to achieve this goal. Just like hydrogen, it's very costly now, but 10, 15 years from now, that will be quite available with a much cheaper for everybody. I'm strongly believing that kind of scenario. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're a trailblazer in terms of the targets that you're talking about. I think the elephant in the room, and you and I have talked about it before, China. If China's not on board and not only pledging, but committing and taking action on this, we're never going to achieve these targets too. Do you believe China's ready to follow through a necessity perhaps, for their country with pollution? I, I think that the China is now ready, and they might uh, lower from 2060 to 2040 hmm. uh, to be more, you know, key, a big, to become a big player in the world. So they are ready to talk. But a key thing is how to formulate the um, rules uh, which are uh, applicable to every country. That's an issue. So rulemaking will be a fierce competition probably. But How having said that, <laughs> please. Having said that, China should join and uh, they signed already that they will join this kind of uh, you know, great effort to the world. 
how do we get the follow through? You can sign a, an agreement, you can sign a pledge, but to your point, there has to be some, there has to be some reason to follow through. Well, Julia, I think uh, just like a CPTPP, that has to be a provision that, uh, about uh, sustainability. For example, CPTPP countries have the uh, rules or monitoring way and bring uh, United States. I understand the United States will not join the TPP, but uh, they can join the, the you know, sustainability rulemaking together. So economic zone or kind of geopolitical power will pressure China to, to work together. So we need an alliance together with the uh, Asian countries and uh, European countries and the, the United States to work together. And then China will follow. And we hope for it. Uh, so I want to ask you about the Olympics. I remember us talking about it in January and you laid out four conditions in terms of testing, vaccine distribution, controlling the virus and also test events. You know, I look at your metrics and I, I wonder whether it's too dangerous for the Olympics to go ahead. Do you think it's time to, to cancel the Olympics, sir? Well, that's a good question. Um, I think still Japan and IOC are preparing uh, based on the current schedule to hold the Olympics. Nevertheless, as you said, the, uh, the rapidly growing the number of new cases, uh, right. that is now leading the uh, government to consider to, to declare another state of emergency. But I'm still hopeful. There are three conditions. One, taking care of the situation of the fourth wave now. Now is the most important for a realistic scenario to hold the Olympics. Two, ensuring safety to uh, players, um, uh, staff members, and the volunteers, such as a daily PCR testing. Right. We have the great case of Australian you know, tennis uh, open cup, and that created the a safety bubble. Third, addressing the sentiment of the people and explain to Japanese people how the government and IOC will ensure safety by holding the event. So, all in all, I think uh, uh, testing is very important. Anyway, vaccines, vaccination doesn't guarantee safety anyway. No. I think as you just mentioned there, the bar is high and fingers crossed Japan can, uh, can achieve it and get the games on the road and done. Takeshi Niyanami, great to have you with us, sir. The Chief Executive Officer of Suntory Holdings. Always great to have you on the show. All right, Thanks. that's it for First Move. Stay safe. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next, and we'll be back tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.